If you need help building your online presence with podcasts, live streams or recorded video, see how I could help at educationonfire.com forward slash media. That's educationonfire.com forward slash media. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you for joining me as always. If you haven't been to our Education on Fire YouTube channel yet, please do. Don't worry, this podcast isn't going anywhere. We've set this video up to support, to bring the community together and to enhance what we're doing here at Education on Fire. So go to educationonfire.com forward slash YouTube to find out more. And today I'm delighted to be chatting to the founder and CEO of Global Equality Collective. Nick Ponsford was previously an award-winning advanced skills teacher and Harvard author. Nick is now an educational and technology thought leader. Now Nick believes that technology is the great equaliser of our time. With a successful career in edtech and experienced school improvement coach, Nick had supported schools online and offline with needs analysis frameworks, bespoke coaching and teacher training for two decades. She has also been external subject advisor for media for over a decade and remains passionate about all students being both media and digitally literate. On being invited into an EDI Twitter group in late 2017, Nick realised that everyone was looking for someone else to fix inclusion. She knew a collective approach was needed and places of learning needed to be educated in intersectional inclusion for staff rooms, classrooms and playgrounds alike. It was out of this frustration Nick sought to do this, but make it also accessible, affordable and impactful. The solution is the Global Equality Collective and the GEC platform. In just three short years, the GEC has built an online community of 15,000, a collective of 300 subject matter experts and raised over 300,000 to build the GEC platform, the world's first diversity and inclusion app for education. So however you're involved in supporting children, I really hope you enjoy this really impactful conversation with Nick Ponsford. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. We cover such a diverse number of conversations here, but I think this is a really important one. But I think also sort of just getting behind the essence of what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it and behind all the labels and that kind of things. Yes, yeah, so thanks so much for being here. No, absolute pleasure. I'm delighted. Thank you. So I guess we should start with why a collective as opposed to anything else? Well, good question. I suppose uh, when I was a teacher, I felt that I was very on my own and isolated when it comes to things, and particularly when you have those uh, the darker times being a teacher and needing that help. And so even when I was sort of earning my stripes as, as a new teacher, then as a new sort of uh, deputy head, uh, you know, head of department, all those kinds of things, I always like to have a network and be part of it. So even, you know, when I became an examiner, you know, there'd be a community that you could kind of go to. Um, And when I became an advanced skills teacher, for example, uh, if there wasn't a local network, I would make one, Uh, I would make people talk to me, basically, (laughs) and I'm still doing it now. So, um, so part of the reason is, you know, I, I like to learn from other people, I think that's really important. With the work that I'm doing now around diversity and inclusion, it's imperative to talk to people that have different life experiences because actually you can't do this properly unless you've got all those different viewpoints so the collective is around bringing together 
a support network for people trying to have a, collab, a collective voice, I suppose, for, for being able to do collaboration and work together and co-design things. Um, but also because when you're looking at diversity and inclusion, no one person can speak for a whole community or protected characteristics. So um, you, you need to go out and, and talk to as many people as you can. And, and therefore, that's what a collective is about. And I think for me, it just brings everything together from what we often talk about here on the podcast in is that you have this sort of idea really about personalised learning. And that is anybody and in any age, any shape or form. And, and I think when you sort of start at that essence, like you say, then it's all about those conversations, because no matter who you are, what your background, what your experiences are, it has to be personal. And then our interactions between everyone has a personal element and that personal connection as well. And then that just sort of really sort of gives sort of the seed to what learning can be and the environment of learning can be and how people can grow. Absolutely. And, you know, you have to kind of question, like, what do we mean by learning and what do we mean when we're doing curriculums? And curriculum is essentially creating that new knowledge within a person so they can take it either for, you know, their, their skills or for, you know, attainment or as, as a aspirational kind of mindset to drive them forward with things. And there's more of a recognition now that we're cognitively diverse we're starting to talk about being a neuro you know neurodiversity um and actually we know that when we work with students at different times they need different things because life happens right so you know that student who had no needs then uh you know a parent um has issues maybe around money or there's a bereavement or the child has an, uh, a short-term illness or a long-term or there's a relationship problem etc cetera, etc cetera. and all of those can pivot how a child is, accesses and engages with learning and therefore we have to really understand that that personalization, you know, they, they, those hierarchy of needs before you even get to start to talk about that transfer of new knowledge with students. So, um, yeah, it has to be, you know, child centred and, and child centred led uh, education. I think particularly now, post COVID, where we understand the importance of, you know, one socialization, but the other that actually staff and students are voting with their feet about what they think education is. And we really need to question what education is and how we're meeting and serving the needs of every one of our students and the kind of the staff being ready to engage with that as well. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because I have quite a few conversations about online school, um, in-person mm. school, a hybrid idea of what that mm. works, what sort of relationships you need and how that works, whether it's external tutors and that kind of mm. thing. And I think you're right, as people sort of go down this path more and more, there really mm. is that sense of, okay, what do we want the education to look like for for my child mm. or, or our particular situation? And sometimes it becomes a no-brainer because um, some families have got a sort of a nomadic lifestyle, so therefore it has to be a little bit more. They can't just go to the school down the road. But I think those people that would traditionally just do that are suddenly thinking, well, actually, there, there are other options here and options which actually will be personalised in a way that are going to be really supportive. Absolutely. I mean, if we think we've gone through the first hundred years of formalised education, I'm a big believer in we're now preparing for the 22nd century of education. And actually, we need to look forward into what that is. Um, 
but it's complicated. So, you know, we've got on one side, we've got the use of technology, which is really exciting. You know, there's a lot of automation that we can do with our tasks that make things easier. There's the questioning around the use of, you know, easy access information like Google, you know, Google, like, has been around since I started teaching in, you know, 2000, 2001. So, you know, we're the first sort of generations of teachers that, that are digitized and go through this digital revolution. Um, and students can access new knowledge in a completely different way. We've got AI, which we're starting to see affecting like the written word. I'm seeing a lot more how it's influencing video content, which I think will have a huge impact on our creative industries, which I think you and I share a love of as well. So we've got that kind of, you know, very exciting straight black mirror version of what's kind of going to go on. But in terms of education, um, I was headhunted and I was part of the DfE EdTech Demonstrator program. So I saw firsthand how schools got online with learning. We, we brought 11,000 schools online with that. And actually, we know, for example, some of the children, maybe more neurodivergent children, more children that were vulnerable, either liked being in school because there were smaller numbers, you know, they had, a, you know, a better relationship with the teachers that were, were able to do more with them. They didn't have all the noise around them and, and the other students that they didn't want, so they liked it. Or they actually prefer to be at home because they don't like being in schools and who can blame them? You know, you know there's safe, much safer at home. They were part of all that kind of hustle and bustle of large classrooms and they prefer to stay at home. And parents saw children engage in education like they hadn't before. Um, I mean, the recent DfE SEND report illustrates when we think of um, our students and EHCP, EHCP appeals, I think it's something like 5,500, so 50% of them were based on autistic children and autistic families and their issues engaging with mainstream schools. So we're at a point where we know we've got buildings that, that need, you know, love and, and care and DOISOS. We've got an education system that isn't really a system. The system is, I say, a series of working parts. We know it's not. We're in a time of crisis with it. And we've got all these kind of technologies around, including a lot around accessible technology, which again, I'm doing work for the DfE on, um, illustrating what the future of learning and that understanding of new knowledge, understanding of the curriculum will be. Um, so it's a very unstable time in education as we're trying to work out, you know, what suits individuals, what suits schools, what suits families, where it's going in terms of politics. So it's it's in a dizzying array of moments of the, diff the different ways it can kind of go, I think. Um, but I see that as full of opportunities. I think it's a really exciting time to be in education in this country um, and to kind of see how see where we go with it. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? Depending on your perception, I, th I agree. I think it's a very exciting mm -hmm. time and the world is your mm -hmm. oyster, <laughs> literally, <laughs> in terms of how you go about it, in terms mm -hmm. of through normal schooling into higher education and apprenticeships and all the, all the diff mm. different options and, and ways that you can do that. But I think the perception for a large proportion of the of society is that it still looks like it did the old way. And so yeah. I know one of your things is kind of that sense of being what you see. And of course, like you say, when mm. it's really unstable at the moment, mm. you don't see enough of that. And mm. I guess this kind of takes us back into that sort of personalized experiences and the personalized learning is the fact mm. that we can only do today what we know today. And so you have mm. to kind of pull that information, pull those visuals of people doing these things, pull the kind of the experience in to 
to make that part of your world and then you kind of sort of move forward in that way if that kind of makes sense I think so I mean I I worked so when I was back in school like in 2005 I worked in one of the first labour academy schools so it was one of the um, first building school for the future schools and that was really like the art of possible like how we design a building you know the subjects we put on and how we engage students um, which actually at that time had the lowest key stage two results in the country I mean that was all great but that's where the money went and then actually there was no further money so uh, we had to be very creative then about what we put in um, and I remember doing things even around you know bringing in furniture cheaply to make it seem like a creative studio where I was doing digital media with the students um, going out into the community to look at businesses that could help with you know career pathways and things like that and I think there is a bit of an element that's always been in education which is around the issues of time and funding but actually that does breed this kind of creativity in, in what we do around it. And as I've gone through from being a teacher and then having to leave the classroom and then come in and working for an educational charity for nine years, and now with the work that I do with the Global Equality Collective, it is very much about attitudes and values, which really don't cost anything. <laughs> um, it's like manners, isn't it? You know, it's... Uh, so part of what i think we're missing in the education sector is that time to reflect on what we're trying to do what we're trying to achieve and why that is and and kind of like what is our why for doing this when we walk into the classroom before we go across every morning you know or every lesson what are we trying to do in that room and i think that's really where a lot of the stress and anxiety kind of cut through where your values and where your visions are um, working within education. Um, and I don't think we've taken enough risks. I think we waste a lot of time waiting to be told to do things as teachers and in schools. Uh, we've lost a lot of confidence, I would say, over the last 10 years of things that we can try. And we're starting to see, I think, around attitudes to things like Ofsted, actually the powerful voice we can have and collectively as well how although there's a lot of binary things that happen on twitter for example there are a lot of things that we're all in agreement with that kind of need to change and i think that's what we've not done well for a very long time is believe our own professional voice when it comes to these things yeah and i think that also sort of boils down I, I can sort of see the parallels in as much as there are lots of students who don't want to put their hand up or put their head above the parapet because the perception is I'm meant to know this already or I'm supposed to be good at this, I'm supposed to do well in this rather than like say that learning process and the failing mm. and the kind of learning by experience and, and all those kind of things and I think mm. there are lots of people within education who haven't known that differently either as a student and a pupil and also yeah. then like say going into into the profession and then it's kind of well it has to look like this because there's Ofsted and the, you know we have to make sure mm. all this is done rather than like say that very sort of creative kind of understanding mm. of what is possible and using your experience and your knowledge and your professionalism to kind of take that forward and I guess mm. in some ways does that kind of sort of all the things we've spoken about so far if we're sort mm. of talking about equity in the classroom mm. I guess you kind of have to take all of those things together and and sort of use that as a starting point you know what is equity and kind of what does that look like in the in, in the classroom and and take us into that sort of journey from like say from your experience and what you're working 
Yeah, I, I have a, a visual <laughs> I normally use, but I, I'm sure listeners can, can work with out themselves. So one of the things I like to really do, the difference with equality and equity. So if, for example, I was going to give a plaster or a Band-Aid to everyone in my school. So I'm the head teacher. I'm going to give everyone a plaster because that's equal. But I don't know where they're hurt, when they're hurt, what they're allergic to where the bits are going to fall off, what kind of shape it needs to be, maybe what colour it needs to be in terms of race and ethnicity of the, of the student. So I need to know all of those different things. And that's the equity before I can give them that plaster. And so what I say is, you know, it's like a lot of the, the conversations I've been having recently about assistive technology, where actually schools are saying we would use, you know, some particular uh, productive tools around our SEND students or our students that we feel have high needs. Actually, if you put that across all your students, you could actually be finding out things that you didn't know about them as well. So equity is more about understanding the gaps, which help would then bring everyone up to then have an equal offering too. Um, so it's harder. It is harder to do equitable education. But equitable education is firstly what a lot of schools are doing really well. They do that day to day by checking in on their students, how they're doing each day, by working with their families, working with the students, getting that voice around. Um, but it's about trying to close that gap about how we can then give everyone that consistency of approach or that equal access in, in a lesson um, to the materials or resources, albeit human as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think yeah, that, that picture's painted really well because you can suddenly see what would seem to be the perfect mm. solution to something or supportive isn't mm. if it's the, like I say, the wrong shape or size plaster to something if you've broken your leg because it's not going to help in any shape or form despite the fact you've got access to the resource that the school or the organisation perceives to be something which is going to help everybody. Um, and, and that really does. And I think when you're sort of talking across like say the whole range of pupils experiences that mm. it must sort of dissolve down to like say hundreds and hundreds of different things and I think mm. the more you think about that the more of a rabbit hole you can get into which feels like I'm never going to get this right or there's yeah. so much I need to do to make it look this certain way but I think the the other way of looking at it is is that my attitude in my environment mm. starts with equity and understanding everybody's needs and that just boils down to the conversation I'm going to have with you now and mm. then from there, I think you start to feel like you have complete control of what you're doing because it's all organic, it's all personal led. Mm. And then from there, you can find all of those resources and all the professional development that you need to give yourself and your school the best opportunity to provide that. But I think you start to you start on a positive foot rather than a failing foot of kind of we haven't got everything that we need right at this moment. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the work that I've done, so I was, as I say, I was a secondary school teacher, head of department, I was then a head of school, I became an advanced skills teacher. So then I started to do outreach from early years through to post 16, send schools. And then following that, when I left the classroom, I then worked for an educational charity, and I worked again, but across the south. So it wasn't just across, you know, schools in kind of like, but related to to my main school where I was an AST for example and I did do four different kind of secondary schools and I worked at the schools where essentially my mates would say that doesn't sound like a good idea on a Friday night and I go that's school for me so I went to the challenging ones like lowest key stage two results in the country like the school where Millie Dowler had been um 
that she was a schoolgirl that was murdered on her way home. And and what I I know from working with schools at scale was when I was trying to help close um, attainment gaps, aspirational gaps, uh, ability gaps, all the different ways you might want to phrase it. Actually, it was me knocking heads with school leaders around that child, that family, that member of staff. And that was around the attitudes and values. And it kind of spearheaded me to really take that as far as I, as I could. And I realised that it took me 20 years to do this, mind you, Mark, but it, it made me realise that actually the attitudes and values that we have impacts our decisions, which impacts the experiences of staff, students and families. So actually, if we go back and we think about those attitudes and values, as you say, that's our kind and starting point. The next bit that I realised was that um, when we want to talk about people and their identity, there's different ways we do it. So there's now a bit more of an understanding around what's called hyperdiversity. So initially you have those demographics of identity like the Equality Act 2010. For the GC, we go beyond that because actually I think socioeconomic status should be a protected characteristic. I don't think it will be at the moment, but I think it should be things like menopause, flexible working, all of those, which actually in a state-based sector, we have to bring in socioeconomic status. We are there to serve. Like the NHS is there to serve on a point of entry. Mainstream schools are meant to be serving our, our students, whoever they are coming into our, our, our schools. But when we start to think about that equity, actually for well my brain anyway it you kind of that rabbit hole that you said it kind of like starts to blow your mind if you start to think well if we're thinking about you know students and their religion their race and ethnicity and their neurodiversity actually that's really hard and when you look at the um academic research we've got in education and i've started doing a doctorate in this because i'm such a super geek about it all Actually, we don't have intersectional research because we've not had the ability to produce it before. Um, it's very hard to go into something like a focus group and understand everyone's lived experience and all the different demographics. So we don't really capture it. Or in the DFV, don't really capture it as well, which means schools don't really capture it, which means we don't have the, the research behind it. So that was part of the work with the GEC, is that I wanted to create something that was intersectional because we get data around maybe race and ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status and disability. If we're lucky, you can find it too deep. You do not find it three or four filters deep. And so that's what we've we, we've produced. That's what GC Platform does. It's like a powerhouse when it comes to identity. And that then allows us to understand how different lived experiences are, either for staff or for students with the, the new module, which we've just brought in, in a way that's never been done before. And it's incredible what it can show in terms of not only where the gaps are, but the areas for celebration, like the, the staff that think, you know their schools are great places you know and and they will stay at that school and so that helps with not only retention but also the messages for recruitment it also then helps look at our students in terms of um, attendance so we can see which groups have a teacher they can be honest with where they feel safe in the school you know those kinds of things that actually for the day-to-day -day are the everyday big little things I call them the things that actually you know those Sunday night feelings or those those feelings about feeling welcome and wanted. But this is really complicated stuff. It's hard to talk about. And that's, again, where technology can kind of give us that shortcut. That can do the hard work. So it's it's easy for us. And that's really kind of what I've been doing over the last three years.
So take us into kind of each area of, of, of the GEC. And so you sort of mentioned mm. the research there and everything as well. And I know tech is, is really important as well. So sort of take us through what people, if they've not come across it before, kind of seeing can experience and be part of. Yeah, well, there's two parts. So that's the easy bit. There's two parts. So again, what we were talking about earlier, the Global Equality Collective is a collective of uh, diversity and inclusion experts. And at the moment, we're the largest um, definitely in the UK um, and potentially globally as well. So we've got over 300 uh, organisations, academics, change makers, so head teachers, authors. So we've got people like Matt Pinkett, who wrote um, Boys Don't Try, Boys Do Cry is his new one, which is brilliant. Um, he's at our conference uh, we've got on Saturday up in Birmingham for head teachers. We've got people like Baymed that we shared uh, our sessions with at BET this year, LGBT+. We've got academics like Professor Gina Rippon, who wrote The Gendered Brain. That was based on initial research she looked at neurodiversity in girls and has gone on to look at the differences, where there are some, uh, with, with um, the different sexes. And so what we do is we cover those global equality characteristics, as I say, so beyond the Equality Act, and basically anyone who's out there doing work that wants to make schools the experts, I hunt them down in a really non-creepy way and get them to join the collective. And so what that then does, it gives us a unique position to be able to QA and centralise the best out there so schools don't have to go and do it. So I know when I was in schools, like if you take girls in STEM, for example, it was really hard to work out, well, who do I go to, which group, you know, and do I go to a regional one? Do I go to an online group? don't know where to start. So that's the first thing that we've kind of wanted to do. The second part with those people as well, I have a real problem with schools spending money on expensive consultants that don't change the dial. So there's a lot of consultants out there with extremely sharp elbows. Um, I know there's a lot of people that have left the workplace and they've got mortgages and there's some great consultants and coaches and there's some amazing workshops and things out there. But there's also consultants, particularly in the DNI space, that either have the lived experience or they have whole organisational change, but they don't tend to have both. And they might be going out marketing themselves as having both. So we get schools all the time coming to us and saying that actually someone's come in and, and ignited a situation or made a situation worse. So what I wanted to do was, again, make it easy for schools to find the best out there so they don't have to spend their time needlessly doing it. So, yeah, we've got 300 and counting. I think I've even got three that have just joined this morning. So we, we add into it all the time. So the other function the collective have is we network them together. Uh, when we get asked to do events, uh, when we asked, are asked to look at things, we, we've got a, a network that we can go to. And they also, they represent the extremities of different protected groups and communities as well. So we then know what the extremities are and can help with like that midway, making sure the language is right, making sure that we're a bit ahead of the curve of what these things are. And also then the intersectionality within those as well. So, for example, we've got um, someone in our collective who focuses on black women and menopause, for example, or we might have someone that's looking at maybe misogyny and online safety. So we we're able to kind of move across what's going on. The collective then also QA our second part, our technology, which is a GEC platform. So 
based out of, again, this work that I had done at scale, trying to help schools with disadvantaged students. I hate that word. I mean, I underserved is what we're talking about, um, students. I realised there was a couple of things. So I would be called in to do kind of like a needs analysis to see where a school was. Essentially, that was by school leaders who said they were brilliant or terrible. Um, that was it. Where I really found out what was going on was basically talking to the staff and students. So I would do focus groups with governors or TAs or you know middle leaders or whatever. Um, and in those sessions, I realised that not everyone could speak up. So you would put on a focus group, but you know if your line manager sitting there and they're the person you basically want to slag off, you're not going to say anything, or you don't want to say really actually this is a really private thing. You know my child is disabled and we're going through this study and you know it's really hard to get things but I don't really want everyone to know because I'm kind of holding it all together um or I'm pregnant but I don't want to tell anyone because I know that's going to impact you know all those kinds of things so I knew that we needed a way to create a psychologically safe space when it came to understanding how staff felt before they left and also understanding any phobic beliefs that staff have for working with students and families as well, because a lot of staff don't realise that they maybe have those phobic beliefs that actually impact on their decisions and experiences until it's too late. So the next part of the platform is uh, the surveys, and we work with the University of Surrey, Kent and UCL, and then with Goldsmiths more recently on our student um, surveys. So they, they get to do that, and so that's online, that's anonymous, and again, just like as you use Google, to ask questions and things that you wouldn't ask your friends and families. That's what we kind of, we lent into. And so part of the work of the GC, it, because this is, no one's done this before, it's been going out and saying, okay, you're an expert in web design, you're an expert in uh, questions, you're a clinical, so would you come together and let's look at how we design it? And that's what we've done basically. Um, and then the last sort of two parts is we created an action plan. So the collective have written recommendations. So a school, they get all of this in this platform. So they don't have to get a consultant if they can't afford it. We've got it all in the platform. So they've got their inbuilt consultant. And then we've created a Netflix style training hub for all their staff. Uh, basically, because a lot of school CPD is really boring and really ineffective. There's some research and stats I could put, but that's a short version. So we've made some of it. it doesn't look like government gateway it looks like a cool place that people want to hang out and guess what they do and then they learn and that really helps you as well um and so our collective have helped with every stage of that as well we've had our academics and researchers helping uh, with not only the questions we've asked but where those questions go uh we've had schools work with us we've just had 50 schools work with us on the student one all their student councils students parliaments helping us design the questions, telling us what why surveys are rubbish in schools, how they get asked, like how the canteen is, and then they get asked, are they being bullied? I mean, can you imagine? They don't even get asked if they want to do a survey. There's no consent, there's no ethical consent around it. They don't get told what happens with that information. So we've taken all those kind of conversations and learned it, learnings and put it into the platform. Um, the way we've created it as well has been a real, I suppose, a real, wonderful part of the work that I've been doing and the support within the sector. So um, I've had original angel investment in the first sort of idea of, of turning this into a digital platform because it costs money to create platforms, <laughs> it turns out. And um, so that that was a fun, I think it was about 48 hours. I was headhunted to do the DFE EdTech Demonstrator programme, got the funding and the three kids came home. So that was fun. Um, 
as we were building that first version, uh, George Floyd was murdered that summer and then Sarah Everard. And I realised that people in schools were ready to talk beyond disadvantage and gender and talk about LGBT plus and neurodiversity. And so I did a crowdfund the following year and we raised about £300,000 and we built this version, which is officially the world's first diversity and inclusion platform for education. Because um, when you do a crowdfund, they fact check it. You can't just make up things like an English teacher, like I was as well. Um, <laughs> And so we launched it about a year ago um, and um, with that kind of first phase, looking at the staff, hoping to get about 100 schools on. Um, and we've got about 270 schools across 25 countries. Um, we've surveyed over 20,000 members of staff and we've just launched our, our pilot for our student side um, and we've already surveyed over a thousand students, which I was really pleased with because the Pearson School Report just came out and they surveyed a thousand students. We've already done it in a fortnight. So we've, we're due to have probably by the end of September about 20,000 students surveyed. And with that, we look at all their different intersectional demographics um, around that. So we can really help schools understand how different groups of students feel about different things and their experience in curriculum, uh, relationships, even the physical spaces where they feel most safe in the school. So schools can really pinpoint what they're doing to help engage with those students as well. It sounds amazing. And it's the reason I wanted to sort of have this conversation in this way, because by starting mm. off talking, as we all do, about what's working, what's not working, about environment, about the day to day of where education is and all of those things, it's mm. very easy to get stuck at that point. Um, mm. Or it's very easy to say, I'm doing this because. But I think having that kind of understanding of the environment and those conversations, but then to hear the next step, you know, like you said, over 20 years from, from starting to where we are today, but how mm. all those experiences can take you into this idea, that idea, this bit of training, creating something like that. And like, like we said before, that's exciting because you feel like you can make a difference. And again, mm being shown this is somebody who was a teacher and understands where you are because you may be listening as a teacher but then this whole new world sort of opens up organically and by you know force as well in terms of just wanting to make a difference and doing it a different way and I think it's the reason I love the podcast so much because it gets to understand the people in the story behind what's going on and that's really really important rather than just like say just the website or just the idea because it's about people and I think what mm. you've been able to share so eloquently today is the fact that you know the technology is there to support what we're trying to do for people it's not just there there in for itself a bit like you said with the consultants you know I'm here to do a job because this is mm. important for me is it completely important in the way that we think it's coming across? And and I think that could be a bit of a fine line, as you said. Mm. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, I feel hugely privileged to be in this position. I mean, for a mum who has to do the school run at least twice every day and uh, who basically, you know, I, I had my first son who had needs and I had to leave the classroom. I was told you can't be seen a leader if you can't be here five days a week. And, you know, I'd won teaching award. I, I'd worked in great schools. I was, I'd been, you know, advanced skills teacher. I love like I can't whistle or anything like cool like that, but give me a curriculum, give me, give me a group of teachers to, to have fun with. I can do that. And so I kind of, my own lived experience has meant that I've had to, you know, stay at home. I've had to start working online. So I started in 2010 and that was a time social media really kicked in in education 
Um, obviously, I did, the GC has been built around from COVID. So I can do eight meetings in a day, you know, and I quite frequently do, which, you know, I can, you know, if I had to leave a house and do that, no, I just would never have done stuff at the speed. And the support that I've had from other people in education who have said, Nick, I see what you're doing. What can I do to help? Can I introduce you to someone? You know, I've already got where we've got trust on board doing the platform, the CEOs and the head teachers are saying to, to, you know, word of mouth. So we've not really had to use marketing and PR at all, you know, till kind of we've got a little bit bigger um, because actually it's all been through word of mouth. And I think because it seems a bit wild what we're doing and that people like it, but I was also very aware because I was that member of staff for an inset day would sit with my arms crossed unless I was delivering it. So like, why, you know, I've got a billion other things I need to do. Like, why is this any good? And so that's motivated me into, you know, I could have worked with one school when we did a student module. I was like, no, 50. Because I want, when people say, does it work? I want to really test this every single which way. And so when I said to schools, who wants to help me test it? 50 schools put their hands up. It's like, great, let's do this. Um, and that's, I think, because of my background, where I didn't think a lot was possible. I was like the council estate kid. Um, I when I came into education, I thought education was about lots of yeses. And I realized very quickly, there's a lot of no's and there still are. And so um, I think where people struggle, and I do, you know, I know what it's like being a teacher, and I know how stressful it is. And I know the traumatic experiences you you can have, you know, I worked at a school where there's like gang rape on a Friday at four o'clock, you know, I worked in those really tough schools as well. And I know how you need low effort but really you know incredible resources you want it evidence-based and you want it from people that know the classrooms and 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 I suppose that's my point I know that I'm not in the classroom I'm very aware that I'm not teaching at the moment and I haven't taught in a long time so I am always speaking to those in the classroom to make sure this because there's no point having this there's no point having the technology unless it actually works for teachers like the ones that are listening now there's no point to it and so that's why we've co-designed it every single way which has taken a lot longer and it's a lot harder but actually that's where the power in it is and I think as we continue there will be trends with technology but there will be more things that kind of come in that can do the work better for us but but created by people within the system not necessarily a business version we get in education which is quite a lot of the technology we seem to be and it's not very nice it doesn't look very cool either <laughs> absolutely and, and I think and I think what you said there in terms of like say the numbers and all of that that just mm. feeds into what you said about you know we need to know the range of everyone in our school you know not just yeah. this is going to fit one person so yeah. you know we need to know a number of schools to know that it fits for people across the board and, and all of that it all makes perfect sense and i love the way it all kind of ties in as of course it would do when you're sort of producing these sorts of things um and i'm keen to know especially as a as mm. a someone in education but certainly as a teacher as well is there something value about your own sort of education experience or a teacher that mm. you remember and and also sort of how is that sort of framed maybe how you've gone about what you've been doing as well yeah absolutely so I mean for me when I was growing up um school was my safe place so even as a a, a bit of a, a rebellious teenager um 
you know, I would run away to school. That was kind of my most, you know, that's where I felt safe. I was, I used to go and do my drawing and my reading, which now is obviously sort of alternative of digital stuff and being a, a digital media teacher and things like that. Um, so for me, school was always kind of a safe place, but I, I did have quite a, an, I suppose a bit of a different uh, educational career. So I started off, um, so I, yeah, I was a council estate girl and I went to a first school and then a middle school and I gained entry uh, then into the local grammar school, which I used to have to take my tie off so the big boys didn't throw rocks at me on the way home. Um, and I really liked being with my tribe. I liked that. I, I found my tribe there, um, all the sort of early indie kids, uh, you know, tipex in our canvas bags and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then when my mum remarried, um, I then was put into a very different world. Um, so I then moved and I went to a grammar school in Guernsey and then I went to an all girls boarding school in Bournemouth, which is where I live now. Um, and I was not like, <laughs> I was not like a lot of the other girls at that boarding school. But then I was because, you know, um, there were a lot of army kids there. Um, if their fees were paid by the forces um there were the kids that got the jet ski for christmas but they were the ones that their parents didn't really spend much time with uh, i realized you could get drugs a lot easier at boarding school than you could at a council estate and i i mean i was a, the i was the kid who was a senior prefect and the head teacher told me that i was a poacher that became the gamekeeper because uh, uh, I knew all the good smoking spots were really. So, <laughs> and I think I I had a couple of teachers along that way, and I think um, my my teacher Miss Denman, when I was at the primary, um, that kind of helped me realise that school was safe and would have little chats to me by myself, which I only as I've sort of grown up I can reflect back on. And then that head teacher that saw. I needed responsibility. I needed direction and, and gave that to me and gave me that confidence, which I, I think I would have I've used my power for, for, for gangster reasons <laughs> rather than actually trying to do something good in the education system. So I, and I think another teacher, the last one would be my old English teacher when I was at the boarding school, Stella Dracos, who's not only the best teacher name I've ever come across. Um, she was Australian. And I think she really understand for a, a lot of the girls that were boarders, we were, we were a little bit lost and just made things much more exciting and took a few risks. And I really took that creativity and that optimism into teaching when I qualified. And I think that's kind of stayed with me, even though I've worked in very demanding, stressful situations and in schools with students with high needs and staff with high needs as well. I've always tried to see challenges as being opportunities to do something around it. And so I, I, my own experience of being at school has really, I suppose, crystallised not only what I wanted to do and be as a teacher, but now how I want to continue to help the education sector as much as I can. Yeah, I really love that. And I think also the way you sort of um, painted that picture of the community, because it's never just about the children. It's never just about the staff. It's never yeah. just about sort of a collective. It is it's understanding that everyone's individual, which makes that collective. And, and it mm. really is 
having that sense of of community but environment i think as well and being able to how you can best support those people when you get the, that opportunity and uh, and you can make sense as these things often do when you sort of hear that kind of whole story of of, of where those ex- personal experiences come from and how you then sort of like I say mold them and sort of fire mm. your <laughs> fire your trajectory going forward um what was the best piece of advice you were ever given or indeed is there a piece of advice you might give a, a young a younger nick sort of looking back um I don't I think there's a little bit that I I don't know what I would have changed because I feel really privileged to what I'm doing now and I'm really excited about the next few years as as continue the things with the GEC I suppose and I don't know if this is too naughty (laughs) but I think my kind of advice is screw it let's do it I, I I just think we don't take enough risks as individuals in education and I I think you know if there's a way of doing things differently a way of trying things out making the mistakes you know all the things we say to our students we want them to do but we, we're a bit worried about offset we're a bit worried about what other people think and actually those lessons where you try something out either you just with one student or a couple or try some ideas out of a couple of like-minded people in your in your staff body or through connections online if there's no one that will do it i think you know take a risk have a go at so if you've got an idea of trying something out try not to be too afraid to give it give it a shot yeah I think that's so incredibly important and it's also the way change happens because if it turns out to be a really good idea that people get on board with the people that can make big change very quickly will go that's a great idea why didn't we come up with that before (laughs) absolutely uh, whichever way it can happen someone's got to take that step and it will come from you rather than like say um after 2024 whenever the government may or may not change um but there's a whole nother podcast (laughs) (laughs) absolutely um and is there a resource you'd like to share? And it's going to be personal or professional, but anything from a book, a film, a song, video, but something which has had a had something that you remember. Uh, well, so like doing digital media, there's so much that every everything I watch, I've just finished watching the recent Black Mirror, and that stayed with me an awful lot. Um, for a book, it would probably be uh, it was a book called Let It Go um, by Dame Steve. Uh, Shirley, she's called. Uh, she's called Steve because when she uh, set up her organisation, um, women weren't allowed to sign the cheques, so she, so she just put Steve. And I think we're about to make it into a film. And basically, she was a technologist and ended up creating almost like a kitchen business, but it was other female uh, technologists who were mums, and they they did things like they worked on the black box for Concord. Uh, she created an organisation and she basically gave shares to Euler employees and made them all millionaires as well. And just the most incredible story as a refugee coming over and doing that with um, the background in the Holocaust, just the most incredible story. And I was fortunate enough at a female founders event that she was there and of course I ran over and (laughs) and made her talk to me and have my picture with her um I think I said I liked her nearly as much as my mum which I got in trouble for (laughs) afterwards with my own mother um but yeah that was an incredible book that just showed me how one person through having an idea and taking a risk influenced and impacted on so many other people and I think a lot of people don't know her story and should 
yeah, uh, definitely. And we'll, and we'll make sure we've got links to all these things on the show notes as well, so you can go and find them as they go through. And and just to round up, obviously, FIRE as an acronym is really important here at Education on FIRE. And by that, we mean feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. Just what's the first thing that sort of crosses your mind when you hear those? Do you know, it might sound particularly cheesy, but actually my kids are... would do that I mean they've all got a bit of a fire in their belly anyway but they help me see things in a different way and because I have worked so incredibly hard over the last few years I feel that I mean I haven't let them run completely feral okay so no one worry too much but you know that the work has really been a passion project that's been turned into an obsession and actually where I've brought them in they've helped so it was actually my daughter when we talked about feeling safe at school, she said, I, I feel really safe in, in my classroom, but when I leave the classroom, I don't. And so I use that question and the data we're getting back from other children about how they feel safe in school is quite a thing. And so they give me constant feedback uh, on lots of different, like my oldest son constantly tells me how uh, I must be colorblind with my wardrobe choices because I like wearing a lot of bright colors. Um, but they they really help. And they also, through the experience of being a parent and being a parent of a child, have really inspired me to keep fighting for inclusion in education because there's too many parents that the so-called system uh, is letting down and it's hard enough having a child that you're trying to support as a parent without having to fight with education and health as well. So... Um, I would say my kids actually. Yeah, I love that. So important, so important, and uh, I think everyone can relate to that as well. The uh, just that that honesty and um, yeah, those natural conversations, which just give you give you that. Uh, it reconfirms life, I think, because it's so just the here and now, which is what so much of this is all about, anyway. Oh, Nick, thanks so much. It's been a fascinating conversation. I've really, really enjoyed hearing your story, but also everything that you're doing. Do share where people can find out more and get involved with all the great stuff that you're doing. Yes, and please do. So um, our website is thegc.education. It's brand new and it's very bright and colourful. We've got lots of free resources we're putting on. So we've got um, the largest UK collection of diversity inclusion books. Um, So we are about to launch in September the new list. Uh, We're actually going to bring, you'll be pleased, we're going to bring music, video games, films, TV shows and that. So we're going to extend our best books. Um, we've also got playbooks. We've got a one on flexible working, one on gender pay gap. That's free to for, for, so have a look at those. Um, and you can find us online as well, um, our social media platforms. So we're at GC Collect. We're on Instagram. It looks beautiful. Uh, Twitter, that's our main uh, community. We've got about over 8,000 on there. Facebook. And then we're also um, on GC Education on LinkedIn. We uh, do amplify the work of the collective. So if you want to diversify your social media, we're great to follow because we can introduce you to lots of incredible educators out there that are changing the dials. Um, Another way we can make it easy. So that's at GC Collect and the GC.education. So please get in contact and come and join us. Fantastic. Thank you so much indeed. And as I mentioned before, we'll have links to all of those on the show notes. So it's always a great place to go and check out not only what we've talked about, but also, like I say, where you can find out more information. So yeah, Nick, thank you so much indeed. Thank you.
Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.